You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. What happens when a brilliant clinician senses something is wrong with his own health? Joining us to discuss doctor and patient, a view from both sides and other questions is clinical professor of medicine, Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and President Emeritus of the Lown Cardiovascular Research Foundation, Dr. Thomas B. Grayboys. Tom, it's great to see you, and thanks for coming into the studio today. It's my pleasure entirely. Tom, you and I know each other for 38 years or 37 years now. We met back at uh, Boston City Hospital in 1971. I was an intern. You were a junior resident, and I, I have to tell you that of all the people I've been associated with, you've had about the greatest effect on me in the way I practice medicine of almost anybody. I'm, I'm always quoting you back for your days back at the city had you met Bernie Lown at that point when you were a student, or did that come later? I met him when I was a fourth-year student and came to work for three months in the coronary care unit at the Brigham. And that was a seminal event in my life because Lown not only was he a brilliant cl clinician and physician, but he was a master of humanism. And I was bordering on the thought that maybe I should go ahead towards psychiatry because I'd spent some time doing that. But at the end of the, end of the day coming up to Boston, being with Lown, my mentor now for decades, has kind of rounded off my career. It's uh, interesting. I've never actually heard you tell uh, that story. I had the impression that you had contact with Lown even before I ever met you, but I can tell those who are listening that when, when we were in this, uh, what you call the war zone, the, the old Boston City Hospital, this incredibly busy place, there was nobody with more dignity. I mean, here you were a junior resident, always dressed nicely, always respectful to the patients, and it was a real model. Even then, you know, way back then, your behavior was already clear that you had decided that behavior was a very important part of being a doctor. I guess that may have come from that initial exposure to Bernard Lown. Always wanted to have time with patients. That was the element that extended way back as a medical student. And to this day, I cannot practice medicine the way I did, but I'm still a doctor. And I think one of the recurrent themes over this last couple of years has been while I can't have a license to practice medicine per se, I can still talk about it, I can meet with medical students, and I'm still feeling vital. You certainly sound that way to me as well. I'll say one other thing about the past, and then we'll get into the into the present, but this one really sticks in my mind. Uh, we were making rounds. I was an intern, very green. You were the junior resident there. And you'd and come from Cincinnati. I did, correct. I was from, I was in Cincinnati as a medical student, and I was in the, here I am in the big city, and you were the junior resident. We had a patient who was unconscious, comatose, from some event, I can't remember the details, and we did our own cardiograms made one with a machine that made one channel at a time. We cut them apart and stuck them together. And this patient had very dramatic abnormality in the, uh, in the EKG, inverted T waves across the precordium in the inferior and lateral leads, and I turned to you and I said, Tom, what is this? And you looked at me and you said three words that are embedded in my temporal lobe forever. You looked at me and said, cerebral T waves. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that was the beginning of my career in neurocardiology, Tom. That, that was the first case I ever saw of the brain doing something to the heart. I feel honored, Martin. So, Tom, wh when did you notice that something was physically wrong, or, or what did you notice that was wrong with your health? The spectrum of denial was not only profound, prophetic, frightening, 
as it gradually drew me into a situation where I was threading water all day, all night, trying to keep myself able to function in the, the way that I had become accustomed to. I was denying symptoms, and as I look back retrospectively, there were signs that 10 years ago, there were signs that something was going on based on, at that time, REM sleep and violent nightmares, which people ascribe to. Tom's still depressed. I lost my wife to colon cancer, and the reality of something going on was such that I was doing everything I can to keep it out of. For example, I would be working up a patient in the evening or afternoon, and it would take, to him, my handwriting had become so impossible. I would stand where the patients were and write a, try to write a note. It would take me seven, eight, nine pa- progress sheets to write one paragraph because it was so illegible. Do you remember even before what's now called the REM behavior disorder, this business of having very vivid nightmares and acting out nightmares that we're so aware of now? I mean, was there anything even before that? I mean, did you have faintness or dizziness or odd aches and pains or loss of your sense of smell or, or anything else that preceded this? There was one episode probably now 10 or 12 years ago that I was in a tunnel in bed with my wife at that time. And... I heard her talking in through this tunnel. And the next thing I know, I had catapulted off the bed and did a face plant, knocking out two of my front teeth, lacerating my mouth. And that was all ascribed at that time to bad nightmares. Did you ever have any problem with your sense of smell or taste that uh, preceded all this? Now, with all of this going on, and particularly the way my voice has changed now, I used to have a decent voice. Now it's kind of fuzzy. You call it denial. Do you mean by that psychological denial, or do you mean that you were voluntarily, purposely trying to cover it up because you didn't want others to notice it, didn't want to believe it yourself? I couldn't believe it. It was unacceptable. And the fear of acknowledging it resulted in a tremendous amount of energy expended. And after two years of this behavior, I sat down one afternoon with the nurse practitioner that Dr. Samuel knows, Helene Glazer, and she's worked with me for 25 years. And she was carefully watching me over a, a full year to see if any mistakes had been made. Fortunately, there had not been any evidence for any of that. But uh, we were sitting down, and we were kind of going over the patient sites in the afternoon. And I said, how do you think I'm doing? And she said, you're not doing well. And I said, what should I do? And she said, you, you must retire. So it was Helene who actually you know, was able to tell you that. Yes. one of your longest standing colleagues. I, mean, I remember she was a nurse at, back at the city in the ICU there. That's right. Could you tell, there was a statement in a little section in your book about coming out of that Brigham garage one day and running into the neurologist. Could you tell, tell me I, again I've, about that I've told that story. the story. I've told the story now numerous times. And I've used it actually in many ways when I'm giving a talk on the subject. I was walking down towards the parking garage at the Brigham and behind me about 10 yards I heard this voice Who's taking care of your Parkinson's? And I stopped in my track. I said, who is that? And sure enough, it was Dr. Martin Samuels. And I was so taken back. How is it that you, well, we haven't made a diagnosis yet. This has been going on for several years. And you, walking down to a parking garage 10 yards behind me, make the diagnosis. And you know what you said then? You no. said any well-trained neurologist would quickly make this diagnosis of Parkinson's. I thought about that a lot afterwards. And I usually don't say things to people, you know, on the street or, or see somebody on the beach with thin legs, you know, I don't go up to them and say, well, you know, you've got charcoal. 
Marie Tooth disease or something. I just don't figure it's my business, but here is my dear friend. And I did say it, and then I wondered afterwards, I really wondered very seriously about whether that was the right thing to do. And I really wonder what you think about it. I mean, was it right, do you think, for somebody to come up to you and say that, or was that a... Was that a In some well, tangential, circuitous way, you may well have saved some mortality and morbidity. It is hard to decide where one's professional life ends and one's personal life begins. You know, when you can cross that line, I felt so close to you, although we didn't see each other all that much. But when you have an early life professional experience with somebody, I think it just sticks with you. What made the transition for you to go from a state of what you call denial to really what is essentially the polar opposite? Basically, you have done what almost no one would do, which is to basically tell everyone who would listen and read about what this experience was like. What made that lever switch in your mind? Some people say that it's been courageous to talk about it. I don't buy that. It's not courageous. The decision was made based on numerous people I'd met, people who I'd judged as important in my life, and, of course, my family, my daughters, and the woman, Vicki Grayboys, that I had remarried after my wife's death, and a number of people, including Peter Zoitlin, who's a phenomenal writer. And my wife said to me, because we have a a lecture we're doing, she said, you've got to stay on track, and the only way you're going to do that is read from a script. So we have this on again, and I like to kind of stand up and wander around the room, and she's saying, which is quite right, that when I don't do the, read from a script, I tend to drift one way or the other. But then I just find it up, this is a disease. Anything that's negative, anything that bothers me, I immediately say it's a disease, and that gives me some scapegoat. I try not to whine too much. I think the whining index is okay for, you know, a couple of days a month. Otherwise, it's, it's a, a waste of energy. It's counterproductive because I'm very hopeful about this. I'm optimistic, and I try to keep a sense of humor. I think the optimism is probably what's still there, and is, there, is, there is reason for it, isn't there, with well, all the that, changes in the neuroscience yeah, that's going on? I mean, on. I think that the stock line is that this is a disease that's not curable, but it's manageable. With all the trials that are going on, I wonder why the book has been selling. It's now in its fourth printing. It's, it's clearly touched a sensitive tone, a resonant tone, that none of us thought that the, we thought that the book would be accepted in the medical literature and I was very proud of that. But what started to happen is that people from different walks of life now are kind of giving the book out. We gave the book out to some cardiology residents at St. E's, and it's happening. I was able to speak to the Brigham House offices there about this. And everyone has stories. Everyone wants their stories to be heard in a non-hurried atmosphere. I want to sit down and talk. And the way we used to see patients was that I had a couch and a desk, and I would sit on the couch patient would sit on the chair, and that's how we would conduct a kind of a schmooze session. And to me, the stuff that used to really turn me on was the patient's stories. And some of those examples are in the book. One time, I was at a wedding of a friend of ours, and whose father had been a longtime patient of mine, and he, a very anxious fellow, and he said to me, am I going to live? I said, you're here at your daughter's wedding, yes, you're going to live. And he said, how do you know? I said, here, and I took a piece of paper and wrote down, you and I will have coffee in one year. I gave him the piece of paper, folded it up, put it in his wallet, and one year later, we did. Hmm. And that is jettisoned to a conversation that I had 
with head of GYN in Philadelphia when we were looking for a second opinion for my wife's illness. And it was clear that she was dying. And he said to her, I'll see you in a year. She said, you're going to see me in a year? I said, of course. That means you think I'm going to live? I said, yes, I think you're going to live. And my wife at that time, just I felt the tension melting as we were relating the story, the fact that now she had given been given a large bolus of hope. And the loss of hope, you're left with despair, and I'm not going to be despairing. Well, I'll tell you, Tom, it's been absolutely a treat to have a chance to see you again, and we'd love to have you come back. I want to thank my guest, clinical professor of medicine, Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and president emeritus of the Lown Cardiovascular Research Foundation, Dr. Thomas B. Grayboys. Tom, thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels 